Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Amen and welcome. My heart's so full this morning from worship. I'm sure yours is too. Uh, just welcome to something we're doing this fall. If you're new here, something called The Journey, where for the next uh, number of weeks we'll be moving through the book of Hebrews. Um, and as we're doing that, a number of other things are happening around here at Mosaic as well. Many of our community groups are meeting weekly to allow you some more frequent on-ramps, as you heard in the video. We're doing a fall fest at the end of October, and we've got a community lunch after third service today. So hope you've been enjoying those devotionals available daily on the app, right? Written by a a number of you. Uh, Daily devotionals in the book of Hebrews uh, on our app Monday through Friday throughout the series. So there you go. Again, we're uh, calling this the journey because in the book of Hebrews, the author, who's unknown by the way, is writing to a group of people, these first century Christians, who themselves are on a journey. They're on a journey through persecution, They're on a journey through suffering. Their property is being confiscated. They're being put to death by the Roman Empire. And in the middle of this, they're on the verge of giving up altogether. They're on the verge of giving up their faith, their trust in Jesus. What did they need to make it through? What do they need to make it? Well, the writer is going to tell them and us today that at every point where your heart begins to fall or fail or suffering or a trial becomes too much for you to bear, he's saying that at every point you need to see Jesus. Something about him, something that Jesus does that no one else to do. And today in chapter two, he's going to tell us that if we really want to make it in our journey in life, we're going to need spiritual family. 
That's what he's saying. And take a look at these two verses here. He's saying both, look at this. He says, both the ones, the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Well, that's astonishing. He's saying again, if we're going to make it today in our journey through life, we need spiritual family, but the chapter is even better than that because it goes on to show us how, how we can get that. And so this morning for you, I'd like to propose four values, there's lots more, but at least four values here from Hebrews 2 that can show us how we can, in the end, have the kind of spiritual community, the kind of family we really all want in the end. Four values here from Hebrews 2. Let's look at them. They're going to be wonder, humility, embrace, and celebration. Wonder, humility, embrace, and celebration. Here we go. Number one, wonder. Look at this verse here that we started off with. It says, but there is a place where someone has testified. Now, if you are not a big Bible memorization person, the writer of Hebrews is like your kindred spirit here. There's a place where someone's testified. Don't know who it was, but we're going to go with it anyway. But, all right. place where someone's testified. What is mankind, humankind, that you're mindful of them, son of man that you care for them? You made them a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honor, and you put everything under their feet. All right. The writer of Hebrews, he's pulling from Psalm 8 and doing something fascinating. He's pointing out here that God, ready? God thinks people are amazing. That's what he's saying here. He's saying God thinks that people are amazing. Made them lower than he ain't, a little lower. Glory and honor. Woo, that's amazing. And then the writer of Hebrews in Psalmist are also turning around and saying, God, you, you, you think we're amazing? Because you think we're amazing, we think you're amazing. You think we're amazing? We're think, we think you're amazing? We're all amazing together. That's wonder. That's wonder right there. Wonder in a relational context is what happens when the greatness of another person begins to dawn on you. When you begin to sense, I'm getting more than I deserve in this relationship. More than I deserve in this relationship. Let me just take you a step deeper here. When God made you and me, when he made people, when he, when he made the universe uh, back in Genesis 1, he, he made everything, and then it says that he, he, he put his work down, he took a breather, so to speak, and he rested from his works, and then it says, Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, that's us, and, and guess what you might think it's going to say next. I don't know about you, but if I were writing this and I were a God, which I'm not another thing for which you can be thankful today, I would have said, God saw all that he had made, and he thought, you know what? I am so good. I mean, look at that. I mean, you know how hard it was, right, to tuck all those electrons into that atom? I mean, come on, right? I mean, elephants and giraffe, that's good stuff, bro. I mean, am I right or am I right? But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say God saw all that he had made and he was good. It said God saw all that he had made and what? It was very good. God is admiring us here. He is experiencing wonder in himself, not because of what he has done, but because of who we are. Because of who we are. 
God thinks we're amazing. The psalmist, the writer of Hebrews says, we're amazing. You're amazing, God. That's wonder. It's wonder. Uh, John Gottman is a famous uh, marriage counselor, marriage researcher, and author. And he does this really fascinating study where he found out, and he's proven, that couples in a relationship who know each other the least accurately are actually the happiest couples. And he's proven this by doing this simple little study. He'll give uh, one partner a list of character qualities, attractiveness, intelligence, and so forth, and ask that one partner to rank themselves on a scale of 1 to 10. Then he'll give the same list and give it to their partner and ask their partner to rate their spouse on the same list. And what he found, again, counterintuitively, was that the marriages who were the greatest, who had the greatest sense of happiness, were the ones in which there was the greatest gap between answers and the ones in which the spouse actually rated their partner higher than the partner rated themselves. For example, uh, if a husband rated himself on a scale of five, uh, you know, five on a scale of one to ten when it comes, came to intelligence, and his wife said, oh, no, baby, you're like a nine, or if the wife rated herself like a six on the scale of one to ten for attractiveness, but the, the husband said, oh, no, baby, you're a straight ten. Those were the couples that were the happiness, happiest. But by contrast, the ones in which the husband said, you know, I'm like a six in intelligence. The wife said, oh, man, you're like a two. You know. Or the wife said, I'm like a seven on a scale of one to ten for attractiveness, but the husband said, you're more like a three. Those were the couples that we're beginning to experience one of the most frequent predictors of divorce, which is signs of contempt. Of contempt. But when these couples, who were the happiest, when they began to practice 1 Corinthians 13, when they didn't just believe the worst, right? They didn't even just believe the accurate. <laughs> no, they believed the best about each other. Now they began to flourish. So here's what I'm telling you with that today. I'm telling you to go ahead... And lie to your spouse. <laughs> Look at when, what John Gottman has to say. He says, flattery will get you everywhere. Here's his quote. He says, some would say the solution to all marital difficulties is honesty. Always saying what's on your mind because that's the truth. But in my practice, I've seen this become an excuse for disrespect and contempt. And these are the things that will cause ruptures rather than healing. True people need to be able to express themselves freely to their partners. But this doesn't mean there's no room for tact. And what may feel honest at one moment may feel irrelevant at another. Flattery, if that means complimenting your partner frequently, showing your affection regularly in symbolic or romantic ways, and bragging about her or him to others, will get you everywhere. I don't mean saying things that aren't ever true, but focusing on the positive, building up credit in that emotional bank account makes a huge difference in how well your relationship will weather rockier times. Listen, this is true in marriage. This is true in friendship with your friends. This is true in our church here with one another. So again, I'm telling you, giving you permission in a way to lie to your spouse, lie to your friend, tell them they are the best friend you could ever have. Tell their, you, you know, your kids, they're the greatest kids anybody's ever had. Your wife, your spouse is the most attractive, most intelligent, most successful person you've ever heard of or met in your life. You're saying, well, that's not even reality. That's not statistically possible. Oh, I'm not talking about statistics. I'm not talking about reality. I'm talking about relationships today. You can keep your reality. I'll keep my happy marriage. 
Except in your case, baby, it's all true. All true. One to ten. All true. Top to bottom. See, Hebrews 2 is pointing out what's at the heart of great relationships is a sense of wonder. Wonder. Let me give you a working definition for it here. Wonder, in a relational context, means we appreciate each other for who we are and we don't resent each other for who we're not. Say it again. We appreciate each other for who we are. We don't resent each other for who we're not. I think of uh, Galen Washington. You know, you guys know Galen, one of our elders in our church here. I mean, Galen's this amazing person. Grew up uh, in Southern California, no dad, right? An African-American community. Uh, suffered violence at the hands of law enforcement. He, he could have been a statistic, but he's married, great marriage, incredible kids. He's this great business leader, like mega elder in our church. And he thinks I'm great. I think he's great. I'm, we're so lucky to have him here. I think of John Lloyd, our other elder. John <clears throat> was born prematurely when his mother suffered a stroke. Then she died in childbirth. Yeah, and now he's grown up. He's this neonatologist who himself cares for and saves the lives of babies born prematurely, and we get to have him as an elder in this church, and he thinks, I'm, I think he's great. See, now what if we did that for one another? What if we sowed a sense of wonder into our relationships? I bet we just might have the kind of spiritual community we really all want. Number two, Second value here, second quality of authentic spiritual community is humility. Let's look at the very next verse. It says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing behind, nothing that's not subject to them. Get it present, we don't see everything subject to them. This is saying when God made the world, he created Adam and Eve, humankind to be his vice regents, his stewards over all creation. But then when mankind, humankind turned their backs on him, they forfeited their rights as stewards and now creation subject to decay. Things aren't subject to people, are they? Hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, right? Not subject to us. Yet at present, we don't see everything subjected to them. That's us. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Now, don't know if you caught this, but this is saying Jesus, though he created angels, these superior beings, even to people, this is pointing out, though Jesus created them as God the Son, he made himself lower than the very beings he created. Now, that's a working definition for humility. Humility is allowing yourself to be seen as lower than you are. Allowing yourself to choose to experience a lowering in status. But look at what he says he got for this. He is now crowned with glory and honor. He got more. The lowering led to a lifting got a friend named Jonathan Z, Z-E-E or J-Z as he lets me call him. Doesn't really like it, but I call him that anyway. And Jonathan is a, a Chinese a man, he's Chinese-American, born in the U.S., educated in Canada, but he lives in Japan. Did you guys catch all that? Uh, lives in Japan, and he is the young adults pastor for the Every Nation Church in Yokohama, Japan. Now, Japan's 0.5% Protestant. Average church size there is about 30, but their church there is about 350. It's amazing. And now he lives there, and he works there, and he ministers to Japanese people, but he almost didn't end up in that spot. 
when he was in grade school, his parents moved from Southern California to Japan because the economy was booming there. But once he moved there, as Chinese people, he and his family began to experience severe discrimination and racism from the Japanese. The Japanese and the Chinese have a very troubled history, if you're not familiar with that. And over time, he began to experience racial slurs and taunts for his skin color, background, history, all that. And hate began to form in his heart toward the Japanese people. But he went back to Canada, got educated, and when he graduated, took a stint in the business world. But then his pastor asked him if he would come on staff and be the young adult's pastor there. And he wanted to take the job because he loved his church, but he knew he would have to give up his hatred toward the Japanese people to really love, really serve, really minister to them. And he said it all came to a head one day as he was out of, out of the country. He was flying back in on an airplane and he looked down and saw his nation, the nation of Japan. And he said he felt the Holy Spirit prompt him. Holy Spirit said, ask me to help you forgive them. He said, but I don't want to. The Holy Spirit said, but I have forgiven you. I have forgiven you. He said, all right, fine. He said, Lord, would you help me to forgive? He said, the nation of Japan. Nation of Japan. He said in that moment, he felt something crack and then something fall in. He said it was like a shell around his heart that cracked and love for the Japanese people fell in. And he went back and he took the job. And in that church, even though his grandmother had said at one point, don't you ever come home with a Japanese woman. He met and fell in love with and married a young Japanese woman in that church. Yeah, amazing story, isn't it? Amazing story. What had he done? He had decided to stop seeing himself as above or better than the people who had hurt him right? You know how that is. I mean, when someone hurts you, it's so difficult, right? You've got a a kind of a choice to make in that moment. When someone hurts you, to to keep um, seeing that other person who's hurt you as, as less than you, as worse than you, as bad or wrong, you've got to now flatten them, right? You see yourself as complex, they're just simple, right? You've got reasons, you've got justification, you've got stuff that's happened that's allowed you to behave a certain way or think a certain way or act a certain way, but they're just bad, They're just selfish, right? They're just wrong. They're just racist, right? You're complex. They're simple. You're good. They're bad. But that's not humility. Humility is saying, I am in need of forgiveness too. You say, well, hang on a second. That's that's not justice. It doesn't sound like justice. No, it's not justice. Forgiveness and justice are connected, but they're two different things, you see, because you can get for, you can get justice all day. And we must get justice. If you want to know how strongly I feel about that, just go listen to the message last week on the record once and for all. We must get justice. The Bible says the world falls apart when there's not justice. God's throne, his foundation of his throne is justice. His scepter's justice. I think we get how valuable justice is. But justice and forgiveness are two different things. You can get justice, but you can still be bitter against the person who's hurt you, see? And if you don't go through the process of forgiveness on the way to getting justice, you'll really just aim yourself at getting revenge. Because bitterness, Hebrews goes on to say, works like a subterranean root. It goes down and it begins to infect everything that comes out of you. Even the desire for justice can turn into revenge if forgiveness, the hard work of it, the humility of forgiveness isn't worked in our life. 
in the first place. Humility, hear me, isn't the denial. It's not the denial of pain, not the denial of mistreatment, not the denial of wrong things done to you. It's simply saying you're not going to allow the self, the ego, the self to dominate that place of hurt. You're going to take the lower place, say, they don't deserve to have me forgive them. But I didn't have, deserve to have Jesus forgive me. And the lowering, the momentary lowering, God says, will lead to a lifting. It's a hard word, but a beautiful word, if we'll hear it today. That's humility. Wonder. Humility number three embrace, embrace. I love this. Once again, look at what Jesus has done for us. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Oh, and there it is. It says, he pulled us close. He shared in what's the word? Our humanity. Now, this isn't talking about the hypostatic union. That's a big theological term that, that, that says Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He's not like a 50-50, 25-75 split. Not as like a, a human being who achieved God consciousness, nor is he like a divine alien being who swallowed a human as now they're mixed together. No, he's 100% God, 100% man. That's the hypostatic union, and that's true. But that's not what this is referring to. Because the word shared here is the Greek word metecho, which means literally to partake. To partake as in to experience something with another. We are all partaking in this moment, right? We're partaking in being here together today. A little later on, we'll partake in the Lord's Supper, in communion together. See, this is saying that Jesus here was a partaker, a sharer in our humanity. Now, I don't know if, you, if you've ever been to New York City. New York City is a great place. You've never been, you should go to New York City. But no trip to New York City is really ever complete without a trip, a ride on the New York City subway. Because if you've ever taken a ride on a subway there, you know what it means to share in humanity. There's all the, all the sights, right? All the sounds, all the unique smells that are on the train and the subway. The things that you, you see that happening over there, you think that, that's, that's really happening. It's going down right there. That's, that's happening over here. Yes, it is. You're there and you're sharing in humanity. See, to be a partaker, a share in humanity means, in a biblical sense, you come close to, you pull in, you don't move away from the people God's calling you to walk with and love and serve and embrace. I've got a friend who's a missionary uh, in Madrid, Spain. He's in Madrid, but he's not from Spain, not from Madrid. He's actually from Panama. He's Panamanian. And he felt called to go plant churches in Spain. And he moved there and he relocated. But he found out when he got there that though both nations, of course, speak Spanish. Spanish is the official language. That the Spanish in each nation significantly different. The accent's different. And those of Spanish background, Spanish accent, look down on those with a Central American accent. He began to feel like he was going to have to begin changing significantly his accent and the way he spoke to really minister to the hearts of the people there, but he was wrestling through it, didn't want to do it. But then one day he went to a restaurant and he ordered something, and it all came to a head in this moment. He ordered a selgas, which is a Spanish word for beets. He ordered some beets. He said, you know, uh, me gustan unas acelgas. There you go. I like some acelgas. The waiter said, what did you say? He said, I'd like some acelgas. 
What did you say? I like some acelgas. What did you? I like some acelgas. He said, they're called acelgas, right? Different pronunciation. He said, you stupid foreigner. Don't you ever come back into this restaurant until you can learn how to speak Spanish correctly. And of course, he's mortified in this moment. He's angry. He's hurt. He thinks, man, I'm not going to change for them. And he goes home. Again, the Holy Spirit comes to him and says, would you change your accent for them? And he said to his own shame, he says, no, I won't. I won't do it. Not for them. They don't deserve it. Their pride, their arrogance. The Holy Spirit said, but would you change it for me? Would you change your accent for me? He said, yes, I would. Yes, I will. And he began to plant churches one after the other. See, he's pulling them in. He's embracing another culture, another way of doing life. See, he's pulling them into himself and he's being asked by God to share in their humanity. And let me just show you how powerful this is and how devastating it is when it's not practiced in a community. I've got a, a professor who, is a, who lived for many years in a, as a missionary in Papua New Guinea, which is the island right above, half the island above uh, Australia in the South Pacific. And he, he tells a story of when he was there, he had a, a, a friend who was an anthropologist and she was there studying a tribe in Papua New Guinea and studying the tribe. And one day something awful happened in the village where she was, uh, where she was, where the, where the people she was studying. She said that one day two men in this village died. And the tribal leaders gathered together to figure out what had happened. Maybe put a stop to it, what's happening. And then the tribe discovered that both the wives of the men who had died were foreigners. They were outsiders. They weren't part of the tribe. And they figured it's the wives' fault. It's the women's fault. And the tribal leaders gathered together and they burned those women alive. And that uh, female anthropologist, of course, was just traumatized by it. And she, she saw it. She was there. She witnessed it. And she ran back. And she called her superior back at the university, back in the U.S. It's actually this atheist superior professor she was reporting to. And she said, told her the story. And this uh, professor back home said, but did you take good notes? But did you take good notes? Now, not all atheists would have responded that way, certainly. But that one did. Why? Because it, that's exactly in keeping with that world view. Those people are there to be studied. We don't want to judge them. We don't want to interfere with them. Now, that sounds tolerant, right? That sounds nice and culturally sensitive and relativistic. But in the end, it's just cruel, yeah. right? It's just cruel. Because in the end, all that professor's doing is still imposing her worldview and in that worldview, people just get burned. People just get blamed. People just get forgotten, see. But did you take good notes? Did you take good notes? Listen, in the end, a, a worldview of relativism just doesn't work. I mean, how can it? Oh, it can't because it won't speak to people in pain. And it won't speak to people in pain because... It can't. Oh, but what Hebrews 2 is saying here by saying Jesus shared in our humanity is saying that Jesus wasn't just content to take good notes. 
He wasn't just content to stand on the sidelines and scribble some stuff down in a notebook about humanity. No, it's saying he came into our village, into our world. He got involved. He suffered. He went into the bonfire of the hell of humanity. He wasn't just a, a, so you can know, he's not just a distant deity somewhere on an ivory towered intellectual, just looking over, presiding over. No, so that when you see the cross of Jesus, you can know that once and forever he has come. He has shared. He knows you all the way to the bottom. He's partaken in our sufferings, becoming just like us in his death. You see how powerful that is when we practice that, when we realize that. But it's even better than that. Because not only does Hebrews 2 tell us that Jesus came, it tells us why he came. Look at this. It says he shared. Why did he share in our humanity, church? This is that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Why? So he can free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. What caused that those women to be burned in that village. It was the fear, right? The fear of death, what's causing it. In the village, right, they said, someone must pay for this. Someone's got to be blamed. The relativistic worldview says, no one should be blamed. It doesn't really matter in the end. Oh, but Jesus Christ is saying, every life matters, and I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay for all of it by sharing in your humanity. By sharing in your humanity, you can know that Jesus has embraced you all the way to the bottom. He died, but he's raised a life now. And church, he's reaching out to us today, calling us to take hold of a new kind of life, a new kind of life marked by wonder, by humility, by embrace. And if we'll put all these three together, now we'll get, we'll get a fourth value of spiritually healthy community. It's incredible. Maybe even better than all three put together. Let's look at it. What can we get in the end? Number four, we'll do these. We'll get celebration. Celebration. Look at this verse 10. It says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Why did Jesus go through what he went through? Why did he go through the agony of the cross, rejection from his own father? Oh, it says this. His heart all along was to bring, it says, many sons and daughters to glory. In other words, his vision for us as his family is to have a glory-filled family. A glory-filled family. There's this uh, brilliant dead guy I like to read. His name is Leslie Newbigin. Maybe you've heard of him. And Leslie Newbigin was a, a, a British missionary to India uh, back in the middle of the 20th century. And he was in India for 30 years or so. And he, he relocated back to England. And he found during the time he was gone that England now moved to being a much more secular culture. And that it now was essentially a mission field, a place that needed missionaries and a revitalization of the church and the gospel. And he looked up and he asked, what could do this? What could refire the imagination of people? How did the church there need to see itself after it had been pushed to the margins. He wrote a book called The Open Secret. And this is what he said about what the church is to be. Look at this, these famous words. He says, the church lives in the midst of history, three things, as a sign, as an instrument, and a foretaste of the reign of God. 
First, the church is to be a sign, what? A sign that says God's reign, God's kingdom love, his power is already breaking into our world. We're not abandoned or forgotten. Second, it's to be an instrument. The church is a thing God uses to help bring in his reign. And third, it says we're to be a foretaste of the reign of God. That when people taste us, they get a taste of what the future reign of our loving king is going to be like. So how then can we show the world, show Austin, Texas, show the, show, show the nation that God's reign is really here among us? Let me propose to you how. It's by loving one another now in light of our future then. By loving one another now in light of our future then. In other words, if God is bringing you to glory and he's bringing me to glory and these things are certain, I got a crazy idea. Why don't we celebrate each other now like how we're going to be then? Hmm? Like how we're going to be then. I ought to celebrate you now because I know you're going to be glorious then. See, Newbegin saying that the church, how we ought to be, how church ought to be, and I'm going to phrase it in my terminology here, the church ought to be a sanctified bachelorette party. Here's what I mean. Sanctified bachelorette party. The night before the bride-to-be is going to be married, her bridesmaids gather around her. What do they begin to say to her? They begin to say to her, you're going to be the most beautiful bride there ever was. They're going to say to her, girl, tomorrow your makeup and hair are going to be so on point. That dress is going to fit you like a million bucks. And when your man sees you, he's going to straight pass out, right? But when they begin to say those things to her, what does she begin to experience? See, they're celebrating her now in the light of who she's going to be. And when they do that, now, here's the word, the foretaste of her consummation with her groom begins to enter her heart. See, she, she, she's not dressed up yet, but she will be. All, all her flaws and stuff hadn't been put away, but they will be. She's not standing there yet, but she will be. And when they begin to celebrate her now in the light of what it's going to be, oh, now that glory, that foretaste, that joy begins to fill her heart. And that is what this is saying church ought to be like. And do you know what our future is going to be? The Bible says it's the wedding feast of the Lamb in glory. Uh, theologians use a, they use a wedding night word. To describe it, they call it the consummation. When all things are brought together in Jesus, all things are brought together, all things are made new. That's what the church is to be. That's what I pray we can be. And Newbegin saw that, that we can be a foretaste of glory divine now to show the world what God's future reign is going to be like. And what then will that look like? Book of Revelation all the way at the end, says this. It says, one day, it says, the kings of the earth will bring the wealth of their nation before God. This is showing you two things, that one day there's going to be a parade of nations, a parade of ethnicities, a parade of skin colors and backgrounds and cultures, and they're all going to come before the king of kings. And number one, they're going to say, we're a Christian first, we're part of our culture second. But at the same time, they're going to say, oh, but Jesus, look at us. Look at what we brought you, the best of who we are. And it says that all of heaven rejoices and celebrates every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And if we're not going to drop our 
our distinctives in heaven one day. Jesus, when he was resurrected, he still came back as a Jewish male, not a genderless ghost. He was still who he was. If we're not going to drop our distinctives, then why should we drop them now? Why can't we celebrate each other now? Hell of heaven's going to celebrate our, our blackness one day, our brownness one day, our whiteness one day, all the shades in between. I'm saying we ought to celebrate each other now in light of who we're going to be then. That's our future. Jesus is not ashamed to call us family, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. How can we, how can we create spiritually healthy community, develop a sense of wonder? We appreciate each other for who we are without resenting each other for who we're not. Second, it's humility, doing the hard work of lowering of forgiveness. Three, we embrace each other. We share in the humanity of our brothers and sisters here. We don't move away when things get hard. And fourth, we celebrate each other now in light of the glory we'll have then. He's not ashamed to call us family, is he? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a what? Foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. It's my song. Praising my Savior all the day long.